Father, we ask that as we open up our Bibles, that you would open up our hearts and our minds and that you would make us attentive to your voice. Father, we come into this place from so many different spaces in our life, many different emotional places we find ourselves. Some of us are sad or confused or joyful or some are full of doubts, and we just pray, God, wherever you find us today, that you would meet us there and that you would take us to greater levels of trust and obedience so that we can be your faithful people in this world. And we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said. So I wanted to begin by revisiting the statement that you heard in that video from A.J. Swoboda, and the statement goes like this, to struggle with one's faith is often the surest sign that you have one. To struggle with one's faith is often the surest sign that you have a faith. Now, I wonder how many of you today have ever found yourself struggling with your faith. You you found yourself wrestling with what we claim to believe as followers of Jesus. And maybe you didn't know if it was safe to say it out loud. Maybe you would be a little bit afraid if anybody else heard the thoughts that went on in your head. Maybe you thought maybe they wouldn't let you be their senior pastor anymore, or maybe uh, you'd get kicked off the elder board or you couldn't show up in church. Uh, But have you found yourself asking that question, am I crazy? Is all of this really true? Are we just making this whole thing up after all? Have you ever found yourself kind of singing the words of a song and you think, do I really believe that? Now, if you've ever find your, found yourself in that place of doubt and you're struggling to believe, you are not alone. You know, uh, there was a great uh, work that was written a few years back by a scholar named Charles Taylor. He's a great philosopher from McGill University, and he wrote this very, very popular book uh, among academics that, that was kind of like the magnum opus, defining kind of what it means for us to inhabit a secular age. And his whole project explored this question. He said, look, how did Western culture go from uh, being a place where in, in, let's say, the year 1500, it was, it was the case that virtually everybody believed in the existence of God to the time till 2021 where uh, the, the idea that there is a God and that he has spoken and revealed himself is contested. It's something that we just don't know whether or not it's, it's true or not, at least in our culture. That's kind of the common uh, belief. James K.A. Smith, a philosopher from uh, uh, Calvin University, put it like this. He said, even as faith endures in a secular age, believing doesn't come easy. Faith is fraught. Confession is haunted by an inescapable sense of its contestability. We don't believe instead of doubting, we believe while doubting. We are all Thomas now. Now, of course, not all of us are Thomas. I know that some of you by temperament or maybe by your own faith experience and journey, or maybe because you just lie to yourselves, you never doubt and you never struggle to believe. But I think a lot of us know what it means to inhabit kind of the world as a Thomas, asking that question, is this true? And I I think very often the the thing that triggers our own doubts, that evokes that struggle, is when there is this disjuncture between the, the world we inhabit, our lived experience, and the claims and the promises of God. 
And we can very often find ourselves at odds, you know, in our own lived experience with what seem to be the clear claims of Scripture and of our faith. And so very often, doubts are triggered when what we believe is called into question by what we experience. And so, for example, you believe that there is a God and that he is good and that he is there and he is not silent. He has revealed himself in Scripture and in Jesus, and you trust this God. And yet your experience calls that trust into question. Your experience of maybe parents who went through a nasty divorce, even though they claim to be Christians. Uh, Maybe when mom got bone cancer and you had to watch her die. Or, Or maybe your own conflicted internal sexual desires and orientation, and you don't know how that fits with the faith you have received. Or, or maybe, maybe it's just you enter into a philosophy class with a smart and intellectually sophisticated professor, and it just raises questions. And, and there's a hundred million different things that cause our own faith to be shaken and to, uh, to, to raise those questions. Do I believe? Can I trust? And you find yourself struggling to believe. I, am I alone in this? Have you ever found yourself wrestling with doubt? Well, if, if you have, I have good news for you because the very father of faith wrestled with doubt. And I think Abraham really embodies that, that statement that we heard read earlier, to struggle with one's faith is the surest sign we actually have one. And in our story we are looking at today, the father of faith is in a crisis of faith. The father of faith is struggling to believe. The father of faith is fraught with doubt. And we're going to see how God met him in this place and how God brought him to a greater position and a deeper faith, not in spite of his doubts, but in many ways because he was honest with God about his doubts. And what we're going to see is that when we are honest with God about our doubts, when we come to him with our own struggle to believe, we can find God meeting us in that place and taking us to deeper and more profound levels of faith. Well, the story of Abraham picks up in his uh, wrestling with doubt, picks up in Genesis 15, verse one, it says this. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram. After what things? Well, you have to go back into chapter 13 and 14, which describes a very robust a very positive time in Abram's life. He came out of that dark period in Egypt that we talked about last week. He goes back into Canaan. Uh, He, in an an act of generosity and magnanimity, I don't know if that's the way you say that word, but you, you get what I'm trying to say, right? Yeah, he, 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 he shares the best part of the land of Canaan with his nephew Lot, but then Lot gets into kind of bad straits in the area of Canaan that he inhabited and some kings, some marauding kings come and kidnap Lot and everything that he has. And then Abraham, in a great act of heroism, you know, steps up and he goes after Lot and with a a group of a lean, mean fighting machine of 318 well-trained men, he goes after him and he rescues Lot and he comes back and he takes him away from these marauding kings. He he pays a, a tithe to uh, Melchizedek. That's a whole nother sermon, but we won't go there right now. But that's where we pick up the story. It's after these things, after 
Abram's rescue of Lot from those marauding kings, after these things, God comes to Abram and he says, fear not. Well, why would Abram be afraid at this point? Well, because the ancient world was a dog-eat-dog world, or you could say a tribe-eat-tribe world. And he has just made a lot of enemies in the surrounding territories by what he's just done. And so no doubt, Abram is fearing retaliation from those marauding kings. But here in an act of gracious kindness and generosity, God knowing just what Abram needs to hear in this moment, he says this, fear not. I am your shield. Abram, I will protect you. I will be your shield. I am your fortress. I am your guard. And your reward shall be very great. And so, so God speaks this word of grace and hope over Abram. And notice Abram's response. How does he respond? You can almost hear in his response that something has been brewing underneath the surface for a very long time. And now it comes out in some accusations and some questioning of God. It's almost as if Abram says, oh, your reward shall be very great. Well, speaking of that reward, God, what about that son you promised me? How am I going to have a land of inheritance to pass on to my descendants if I don't even have one child? And Abram said, oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. The only person I have to hand any kind of inheritance off to is my servant. And Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring and a member of my own household is gonna wind up being my heir. What is happening in this text? Well, I don't know if you've noticed this, but Abram in this passage is explicitly rebuking, and he is resisting, and he is uh, uh, speaking against the very promise that God made to him. God said, I will give you a son, and your son is going to become a great nation. And Abram says, you have not given me a son, and now I'm not going to have a son to give off an inheritance to. He is denying the promise of God. And so do you see what's happening here? The very model of faith is wrestling with doubt. And why is he wrestling with doubt? It's because the promise of God stands in contradiction to the barrenness of Sarah and the age of his own old aging body. He says, look, my lived experience is not in line with your good promise. And he throws that back in God's face and he brings his doubts to speech in the presence of God. Listen, doubt is not an enemy of faith. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. It's not an enemy of faith. Great men and women of faith in the Bible struggle with doubt. In fact, there is a portrait that Matthew paints at the very end of his, his gospel. In fact, it's the last description he has of uh, the disciples. And the last phrase in the gospel of Matthew describing the disciples were this. It said, and, and there were some who worshiped and others who doubted. 
as if to say, here is a picture of us all, a picture of the church. We are a mixed, complicated bag of both worship and faith as well as doubt. Listen, the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is unbelief. And what is unbelief? Unbelief is a willful, settled position where you say, I won't believe. I don't want that to be true. You know, years ago, uh, our family watched this documentary called The Sugar Film. And it's this uh, fear-mongering, you know, tale of the absolute horrific outcome of sugar on your body. Friends, sugar is like meth. Stay away from it. And uh, recently, you know, just not not long ago, I I noticed that our family was starting to consume more sugar, including myself. And I was like, I need to, I need some more fear mongering. I need to watch, kids, we need to watch this documentary. And they're like, look, I don't want to watch the documentary. I don't want to hear that. Why? I don't want that to be true. And that is willful unbelief. I don't want it to be true. But listen, the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is unbelief. But what is doubt? Doubt, in some ways, is a subcategory of faith because doubt is the struggle to believe. Doubt is often a companion on our journey of faith. Oswald Chambers put it like this. He said, doubt is not always a sign that you are wrong. It may be a sign that you are thinking. It may just reflect the fact that your brain is in check and you're rational and you're like, look, there's things around me that are calling into question the claims of my own faith community. Francis Bacon said, you know, the great scientist, and he said this regarding the scientific method. He said, if a person will begin with certainties, they will end in doubt. But if you are content to begin with doubt, you can end in certainty. Now, of course, he was talking about the scientific method, but the very same thing is true of faith. Very often, we have very confident and certain beliefs And there is something healthy when we begin to question our understanding of the Bible and what we thought about God. And because very often those very questions can lead us into deeper and more profound understanding of who God is. And that's Abraham in this text. He he begins with all of his doubts, but he ends in a greater expression of faith. And Abraham believed God, it says, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Tim Keller put it like this. He said, look, a faith without some doubt is like a human body without antibodies. People who blithely go through life too busy or too indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed to take seriously her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. And I know some of you parents or grandparents in the room, your kids, your grandparents, I mean, your kids, your grandkids, they ask difficult questions and very often you just don't like it because you don't want to be disturbed and troubled by those difficult questions. But it's where your kids, it's where your grandkids are at. And uh, some of you, you younger people, you, you wonder why your parents don't ask more questions. You're like, have they been reading this ancient book? 
You know, do they see everything that's in here? And, and very often, uh, you know, there, there is a healthy place for asking good questions. And so look, doubt is not an enemy of faith, but let me caveat this. Doubt is not an enemy of faith if, if what? Doubt is not an em- enemy of faith if doubt is not used to escape commitment. You see, sometimes doubt can be a problem because we can utilize our doubts as an excuse for moral clarity and making firm decision. We can use our doubts, we can use all of our endless, ceaseless questions as as a means of escaping commitment. You know, my brother, Brent, he dated his wife, his now wife, Anita, for six years before he asked her to marry him. And uh, I remember there were multiple conversations I had with my brother over those years that went something like this. Brent, don't you love Anita? Oh, yes, I love her. Isn't she everything you want in a wife? Oh, yes, she's everything. She ticks all of the boxes. She's beautiful and she's godly and she's a woman of character and, and I love who she is and we get along and we're best friends. And I'm like, Brent, what, why, what, what's going on? Why, what, why? And listen, the problem wasn't with Anita. It was with my brother Brent. He feared commitment. He was a commitment phobe. And he was afraid of vulnerability and risk and, and, oh no, what if, and the outcomes. And very often we can use doubts and our incessant questioning as a means of escaping commitment. Of actually living a life of decision. But listen, you have to live a life of decision regarding something. And listen, it, maybe, maybe all of your questions are like a person, you know, um, if somebody is driving a car and there's a noise in the engine and you're like, there's something wrong with this engine. And what do you do? Well, if you pull over the car and you simply get a hammer and you start taking apart the engine, I know you can't take apart an engine with a hammer, but <laughs> I don't know much about cars. I'm a pastor, you know. <laughs> but listen, you tear apart that engine Yeah, yeah, you might have done something. You've you've gone after the problem and you've pulled apart the problem, but you don't have a car that can drive you anywhere. And listen, if all you do is deconstruct your faith and ask question after question and poke holes and pop everyone else's balloon, you better pause for a moment and ask, is there something substantive that can actually drive your life somewhere? And listen, the Christian faith The scriptures, God's revelation of himself in Jesus Christ is something beautiful and substantive that can take your life somewhere. But you'll never get there if all you're doing is taking apart the engine. But in our text, Abram is not afraid of commitment. That is not where his questions arise. Abram, of anyone in the Bible, is a man of commitment. God said, go, and Abraham took his family and his possessions and his nephew Lot, and Abraham got up and he went. Later at the end of Abraham's story, God will say, go and take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, on the Mount Moriah and sacrifice him. And Abraham got up the next day. He got up early and he saddled his donkey and he chopped the woods and he got his servants and he got his son and he went on. Abraham is not afraid of commitment, but his doubts His struggle in our text is arising out of this disjunction between his experience of his own aging body that keeps getting older way past the the years of fertility. I mean, this is not, they didn't have Viagra back then. Was that inappropriate to say in church? It was probably, it was. Thankfully, this isn't the one that's being recorded. 
It is the one that's being recorded. Yes, exactly, Dwight. Yes. But his wife, Sarah, has been barren for years. And, and he's just like, How? This, this is not happening. I don't, the promise has come. It sounds nice, but it's not happening. And I want you to notice that Abram is honest with God. He brings his own doubts to speech in the presence of God. And listen, even if sometimes you feel like you can't be honest in church because you're afraid of what people will say or what they will think, and is this a safe place for you to really be honest about where kind of like you've been in your own head? The presence of God is a safe place for you to be honest with your own doubts. God wants the real you. He doesn't want the pretend you. God can't do anything with a facade. He can't do anything with a fake self. He can only work in the real you. He loves the real you. So bring whatever you're going through to speech into his presence. This is what Abram does. He vomits it all out on God. And I want you to see in our text that God meets him in his doubts and he brings him to a deeper and a profound level of faith. And he does so by doing three things. I want you to see, number one, how God responds to Abram. Number one, he showed him the stars. Look at back at the text. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And we just imagine God coming to Abram in his tent on the dark night and putting his arm around him and taking him out into the dark night side where the sky was just flooded with millions and billions of stars. And God says, look at the stars, look at the stars. And I think in this moment, God is appealing to Abram's reason. And he's saying, look, consider the heavens, the work of my hands. A baby from a barren womb is nothing from the power that brought the universe into being. You know, the word that spoke this promise to you, Abram, is no less than the word that called all things into being. This is not irrational. It's not illogical. He says, look, I'm not asking you to trust in, in, in a barren womb. I'm not asking you to trust in your aging body. I am asking you to trust in the power that called heaven and earth into being. And in this moment, he is appealing to his reason. He's asking him to believe something entirely reasonable that God who creates can exert his power to create a people from Sarah's barren womb. Listen, I just want to talk to you for a minute if you've been struggling with doubts. Look, it, it is difficult to believe something if you are not convinced that it's actually true, isn't it? And you can't have a faith in things that are unreasonable. And the Bible doesn't give us a faith that is unreasonable. Now, of course, you can't have faith in a thing that is unknowable and mysterious. I trust my wife, Alicia, and there are aspects of her that are unknowable and mysterious. And I'm sure that there are aspects of me that she finds unknowable and mysterious. But faith has a cognitive dimension. It is more than intellectual. It's more than cognitive, but it is not less than that. And I know sometimes that Christianity is rejected on intellectual grounds, 
And if you reject it or you have a difficulty with it for that reason, I get it, I understand you. But let's be clear, skepticism doesn't make an intellectual. Skepticism doesn't make an intellectual. You know, as Dallas Wellard who once quipped, we live in a culture that has for centuries now cultivated the idea that the skeptical person is always smarter than one who believes. You can almost be as stupid as cabbage as long as you doubt. But listen, skepticism doesn't make an intellectual. Study, deep, rigorous, long, reflective study makes an intellectual. But skepticism doesn't make you an intellectual. And it's a shame to me that here we have a subject of the greatest consequence, God, God's existence, and God's self-revelation in Scripture and in Christ. And yet in the face of, of this subject of such great consequence, uh, it is just a shame that it would be studied so little and dismissed so lightly. The Christian tradition is hands down the most intellectually rigorous religious tradition. Look, we Christians may not be as peaceful as the Buddhists, and we may not be as public with our faith as the Muslims, and we may not be as nice as the Mormons, <laughs> but Christianity has an intellectually robust tradition. And it is likely the case that some of the most difficult problems you have with the Bible or with the church or some of the most challenging questions you ask about free will or evil, they have legitimately good answers. There is a wealth of good literature. There are substantive answers to the most challenging questions. There is 2,000 years of a tradition here that we have to draw upon. But you will have to look beyond stupid memes or blogs or podcasts or cliche tropes that are presented to us on TV shows or the New York Times bestseller list. You do yourself a disservice if you walk away from faith without doing the real business of engaging with the intellectually rigorous and profound and rich tradition of the church. Now look, I'm not saying that the most important way you engage with Christianity is by shutting yourself in a room and reading books. There are way better and more important ways for you to strengthen your faith, but it's not less than that. There's an aspect of the cultivation of a rich and a robust faith, if you're struggling with doubt, that can go here. But of course, Abram, God doesn't just show him the stars. He does something else with Abram. Secondly, I want you to see that Abraham, or that God reasserts his promise. Look back at the text. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. You know, Abram is fraught with doubt. He's asking all of his very difficult and honest and very good questions. And, and we find him just struggling with doubt and, and, and struggling to trust God. And then just two verses later, we have what is arguably the most profound expression of faith in the entire Old Testament. When the New Testament authors want to go back into the story of Israel and cull the most profound expression of faith, they go here to Genesis 15. And Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So he goes from this crazy you know, doubt to this deep faith. And we ask, what happened? What happened to Abram? And here's what happened. The word of the Lord happened to Abram. God reasserted his word of promise. 
He says, this son shall be your heir. He takes him outside, shows him all the stars, and he says, count them if you are able. Then he reasserts his promise, and so shall your offspring be. You go on in the text, and he shows him the land again, and he says, this land is yours as far as the eye can see. God reasserts his good word of promise. And it is that word of hope and promise that evokes faith in Abram. Or as Paul will later say say in the book of Romans, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of the gospel. And this kind of makes sense because we're relational creatures. And it's not enough for Alicia to have told me that she loved me back when we got married. I am insecure and sometimes I wonder like, you know, yeah, you said that yesterday, but I need to hear this again. And some of you can relate to that. It's not enough to hear a word of commitment and love and promise once. You need to hear it again and again just to be sure. And here God speaks his word of the gospel over Abraham just to be sure. I am the God who is for you eternally and unreservedly for you and not against you. I have promised myself to you. I will never leave you or forsake you. And my promises are sure. They are yes and amen for you, Abram. I have made it sure by myself. He speaks his word of promise over him again. And listen, one of the most important ways for our own faith to be nourished and strengthened when we are struggling with doubt is to put ourselves in the place where we hear the word of the gospel, the word of promise come to us again and again and again. And of course, the place where God shows up and speaks to us in the word of the gospel, yeah, it can be on our own and our own personal Bible reading time, but the most... uh, the strongest place that God shows up when we hear the word of the gospel spoken over us is when we come together in the gathered community around word and table. When we hear the word preached, when we hear the word sung, when we hear the word prayed, when we see the word enacted, the word of the gospel in the bread and the cup, these elements announce to us, God saying to us again and again, I am for you unreservedly and completely and eternally for you and not against you in Jesus Christ. I love you and my promise is sure you can trust me. You know, sometimes when we are struggling with our faith, we think, I, I, just, I, just, I just need, maybe I need to take a break from church. I, I need to, you know, I just need to step away. Remember years ago, I had a dear friend who was a graduate of Yale Divinity School, and he, he had a very lively conversion story and a great faith, and he wanted to serve the Lord, but he started struggling with doubt. He was very, very intelligent. And at one point, he, he said, look, he said, I just need to take a break from church And he he stayed home on Sunday mornings, and instead of going to church, he read Bertrand Russell and Immanuel Kant. That's a bad idea. Now, of course, almost no one in this room would would be tempted to do that. But but you might be tempted to, to pull yourself away from the community and immerse yourself in other stories and narratives on social media or or on memes or in tropes on TV or whatever that that rehearse kind of an anti-faith that indoctrinates you in an alternative ideology than the ideology of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
and it can be damaging to your faith as you pull away, you need to be in worship. And it needs to be a priority in our life. I don't understand Christians who go to church once or twice a month. That is not enough. This is a rhythm for the people of God. You know, back when, um, back in the spring, our family took a trip down to, or up to Santa Barbara to El Capitan State Beach. And one of our favorite pastimes while there was skipping rocks. You can go down to the beach and they have the best skipping stones you've ever seen. And we would just go down there for hours and just skip these stones. How did that skipping stone become so perfect? It didn't begin that way. It was through the movement of the waves when they came in and out and in and out. And as the stones were tumbled, as the water came in and out, those stones were shaped and they were formed into that perfect skipping stone. And listen, your own faith, your trust in God that is life-giving, that will sustain you, that will give you hope in the face of your depression, that will give you hope in the face of all of the discouragement around you. The word of the gospel comes to us again and again in the gathered community in word and in sacrament. And we get tumbled in the word and it shapes and molds our faith. But of course, like Abram, we need to come to God in this place with an openness and with an honesty. If we come with a dull, deadened faith or a fake self that we don't open up to God, we don't come open, then it's unlikely we're going to be molded and shaped. So number one, he shows him the stars. Number two, he reasserts his promise. And number three, I want you to see, strangely, he cuts a covenant. Now, what, what we're going to see next gets so foreign and strange, and it's very clear that we're reading something from about 3,500 years ago at a totally different time and place. But let's just read through this because this is so incredibly important, and it's going to take us right here to the Lord's Supper. Look at what it says in the next verse. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land of promise. But again, he said, oh, Lord, how can I know that I shall possess it? See, he's still a mixture of faith and doubt. God, how can I know? How can I be sure? And then God said, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, a young pigeon. So look, you want to have your, your faith strengthened? Here's what you need. A female goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these and he cut them in half and he laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcass, Abraham drove them away. What is going on here? Listen, in the ancient world, they didn't have written contracts that were legally binding, upheld by a court of law, enforced by a very structured system of justice. No, it wasn't, it wasn't like that at all. This was an oral culture. And so if you wanted to ensure that somebody was going to keep their word and do what they say they would do, you would enter into a covenant with them. And how would you enter into a covenant? Well, first, you'd get some animals. And then next, you would chop them in half. <laughs> and then third, you would lay them out with space between them, forming an aisle. 
And then you would, you would stand next to the person you were entering into a covenant with, and the two of you would, would reassert what you were promising to one another. Then you would walk through this aisle of split carcasses, and then you would say, and so may this be done to me if I fail to uphold the covenant. Try that on your plumber next time they come to the house. But do you see the power of a ritual like this? And here's the wild thing. God says, get the animals. I am cutting a covenant with you. But then something incredibly strange happens. Something in the ancient world that was completely unexpected. Nobody in the ancient world would have thought this would happen. It says next, and as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell on him. And so the sun starts to go down. Abram goes into this deep, almost supernatural sleep. There as he's asleep, he has a nightmare where the, the word is given to him from God, I'm going to give you this land, but it's only going to be after a long delay where there's going to be a lot of suffering. And then it says this, and when the sun had gone down and it was dark, now it's pitch dark, it's the dead of night, Abram is in a dead sleep. And look what happens next. And behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed through these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I will give this land from the river Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kezizites, the uh, so on and so forth. <laughs> but do you see what's happening? There's a twist in the familiar covenant practice. Normally, both partners would covenant to each other, walk through and say, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, here's what's going to happen to me. And in the ancient world, you would never have a greater pledge themselves to the death to a lesser. So a king would never pledge himself to his conquered subjects. No, they would pledge themselves in covenant. They'd walk through, if we aren't loyal to you, king, let us be cut in half. The gods would never pledge themselves to the, the, the idolatrous people who are worshiping the gods. But here there's a twist. The twist is Abram doesn't enter the covenant at all. Here God is moving humanity forward. He is giving us a totally new conception of who God is and what God's like. This is not the God who is going to say, look, my relationship with you is dependent upon how well you maintain the covenant. I will keep my promise so long as you uphold your end of the bargain. And if you don't, it's curtains for you. You're going to be torn in pieces. This is the God who enters into a covenant relationship with his people and he is willing to go so far as to say, may I be torn in pieces if not only I fail to uphold the covenant, but may I be torn in pieces if you fail to uphold the covenant. And Abraham would have no idea just how serious God would become with this promise. That in Christ, God himself, his heart would be torn asunder would be cut in two. He would bleed and die on the cross, bearing our curse and our judgment for all of the ways in which we have been unfaithful. 
so that God, by God's own self, could remain faithful to us in Jesus Christ. And so he cuts this covenant with Abram. He says, you can trust me. Friends, you can trust this God. You can trust this God. Let's pray together. Father, as we prepare to approach this table where we will hold in our hands the elements that speak to us of your torn body and of your shed blood, that you are the God who incarnates love among us, self-sacrificing, self-giving love. You are the God who is faithful to us even when we have been unfaithful. God, would you use this space and time to evoke our deeper trust in you now? God, speak your word of love and promise over the hearts of everyone in this place. And even as we hold these tangible elements in our hands, may we be reminded that you are tangibly and concretely the God who is for us in Jesus. And it's in his name that we ask these things. Amen.